Simple Suttas, a podcast on original Buddhism. Visit us at simplesuttas.wordpress.com. Man, I got into some stuff that I've been thinking about. Sorry, it's... No, it's uh, great. I, I think people, <laughs> um, me for sure, are way more interested in, uh, in hearing something that, that uh, you were really passionate about then, you know, just kind of uh, slavishly going through sure, what, sure. what you're supposed to, that, you know, I just cannot hear another talk on uh, introduction to, uh, you know, one of one of these basic topics. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's perfectly fine in this world. Uh, we have a, you know, a little um, a Buddhist center here and everything that gets checked out are the intro to Buddhism books. They sure, get checked absolutely. out and never come back. Yeah. But, uh, at, at, you know, at, at a certain point. Uh, you've got to go a little bit deeper, yeah. and uh, and that requires a little bit of passion. <laughs> well, um, so do you think that uh, it, it's possible for us to sum it up in a sentence or two how that link between uh, comic formations and consciousness goes? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, once again, the teaching that you read, I think that that's – it cannot be explained any clearer than that. I'm I'm incapable of doing it, right? That's the way that he explained it. And if that's still dissatisfying, that's okay. Um, but I think that it really can't be put any more clear than that, that the idea that any action that we make is going to, uh, you know, create a station for consciousness, that, that that's the, the continuation of, right, and uh, that with the continuation after the break of the body, uh, boom, we're going to find ourselves, it's, it's, I mean, it literally says it's going to go and grow to maturation, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and to me, that's really clear, that it's going to go find Namarupa and that uh, the Namarupa is going to grow. And then, uh, then that puts us pretty much back right where we were with Namarupa to uh, a yatana. Okay. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, so six sense bases, and that was the last thing that we covered. And we said, well, okay, as soon as you have Namarupa, you need some way to experience the phenomenal world around you. That's a yatana, six sense bases, right? I think from here on in, it's uh, it's. It's straightforward, at least as from a Buddhist understanding, right? That, that, that you know, once we start experiencing the senses, we want it to be one way or the other. This mm-hmm. feeds very much into our, our conversation on uh, uh, on feeling. And then once you uh, once you decide that you want things one way and not another way, then you crave for it to be that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you cling to, uh, the, to 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 a kind of life that is able it enables you to get the things you want and to avoid the things that you don't want. Mm-hmm. As soon as you have that clinging, then uh, you you want it to uh, continue. And I think here's the the the, the real moment where rebirth is uh, is is most clear mm-hmm. is that. Even at that moment of death, you're still clinging to life. You still want uh, things to be a certain way and not want them to be a certain way. And it's that energy that is the energy behind uh, rebirth. Yeah, and Baba, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you've got uh, becoming birth, aging death, and the whole mass of right. sorrow. And I think the only thing, I think that you're you're absolutely right in, uh, in almost all those. The only thing that I would add is that once again, for me, I really believe in these specific definitions given in 12.2. And because uh, before, I guess, I would have thought, so, okay, so from contact, uh, we have feeling. And actually, this is the, to me, this is important because once again, um, we talk about, okay, what what happens when you become uh, arahat, right? And I think that uh, there's some clear indications on these these further links and exactly where those links stop once you become further, uh, you know, fully enlightened and that previous to a certain link, you can't do anything. Hmm. Um, and so for me, uh, feeling, right, uh, we get three types of feelings and he says, okay, yeah, pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, uh, neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling, right? And um, so here you go. Here's a question for you. Does uh, Arahat have feelings? What do you think? I would say yes. Yes. <laughs> I would absolutely agree, right? We have um, again and again, 
the Buddha having horrible racking pains. It's right, mentioned right. multiple times. Uh, one so bad that he needed to stop in the middle of giving a Dhamma talk and uh, lie down. Um, there's <laughs> I have another that feeling. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> um, there's another one where um, it specifically says that he was very, very ill. He had a disciple come and uh, uh, give a teaching to him. Yeah. Um, the uh, the teaching it was more or less the first one that we covered the Anatta Lakana, yeah. right? Um, it's a beautiful moment. I mean, I I just yeah. these things they just really they str- they're straight to my heart on these ones. Oh, those little moments of humanity are so yeah. touching. Just absolutely incredible. Well, uh, ha- um, let me ask you this: yeah. so, uh, of these twelve links, which one do you think uh, an enlightened person would experience, and which ones would they not? I mean, uh, you, you so, gotta think no ignorance, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but on the other hand, they do clearly have six sense bases. They do have contact. They do have right. nama rupa. They do have feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do have. Uh, hmm. uh, so would you say birth? I mean, uh, you know. Ah, the, 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 <laughs> so, okay, so this is where we get, this is where we get interesting, right? And this is why, once again, people talk about one lifetime, two lifetimes, three lifetimes. This is, I think this is an almost completely wrong way to look Absolutely. at it. Absolutely. Right? Um, because we have to take it outside of any kind of temporal framework. A hundred percent. And, um, and so with that, uh, with that contact comes that feeling. If you have that, if you have contact, uh, you have feeling. Now, there is times where he says that uh, the two things about people that are fully enlightened. He says that they experience contact as if removed from it, right? And we talked about that last time with the simile of the two darts, right? So, but that's, they do still, there still is contact there, right? He says there is also a time when they can completely eliminate contact. When is contact completely eliminated? In the cessation of feeling and perception. And so that, that's a, that, that is a meditative place that they can go to. And it, towards the end of his life, he talks about he's in such bad pain all the time. The only place that he can go in order to escape that is the cessation of feeling and perception. Okay. So, but as long as they're walking around in normal everyday consciousness, so much as they have a normal everyday consciousness, um, there's going to be contact. There's going to be feeling. Now, what's the next link, though? Contact, feeling, craving. Yes. Now, bingo. You would think, no. That's the one, right? (laughs) Uh, Repeatedly, he does not talk about the the complete and destruction, uh, complete and total destruction of contact or the complete and total destruction of feeling. Hmm. He does talk about now scattering them like like a child scattering a sandcastle, making it unfit for play because they no longer take pleasure in it. He talks about that. But he doesn't talk about their cessation in everyday waking consciousness walking around. He does, however, talk about the complete and total utter destruction of craving, right? And of course, uh, of, of rebirth, uh, rebecoming, and so on. But not aging and death. Yes, uh, yes and no, right? Um, and once again, this is where we have to kind of think about temporal framework. That mm-hmm. So, okay, craving, I believe, is totally destroyed, yeah. right? So uh, with uh, craving being completely destroyed, Clinging, and once again, we'll, we should go through and, and uh, kind of uh, define those terms. Right. Well, and that, that uh, I think, is exactly why I place a dependent origination as an explanation of the second noble truth, mm-hmm. is that he's saying, you know, th- this, is, this is the key moment here. Yeah. And uh, if you look at it, I think what we're talking about right now is exactly uh, the point, right, that an enlightened person will still have that physical apparatus but will no longer have that aspect of, uh, of craving and clinging. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so craving and clinging, so once craving is destroyed – uh, clinging is destroyed. So uh, craving, uh, six types of craving, right? That's let's let's do it. Let's let's just get uh, okay. to it. Go, go for it. I, right? I, I'm, uh, I'm out of the quiz. So uh, craving for forms, craving for sounds, craving for tastes, craving for smells, craving for body contact, craving for ideas. Right. Um, those those are the six types of. Uh, what? Sorry, am I right here? Yes, I think I'm right. 
Craving. Those are the six types of craving. That it, it, Double check 12.2 there for me. I'm pretty sure that's the teaching he gives here. Okay, yeah. Craving for forms, craving for sounds, craving for odors, craving for tastes, tactile objects, mental phenomena. Yep. So, this is called craving. Yep. And so those are the types of craving. Now, when we get into clinging, see, because before, once again, I said this was didn't feel clear to me. It felt like, okay, I kind of understand, you know, what craving feels like. And then, okay, clinging, you know, oh, I'm really, really taking it up. Oh, well, that's not a very clear definition at all. Oh, okay, I feel something, I want it, and then I'm really, really getting into it. Well, he, this, he describes clinging very clearly. clearly. Go clinging ahead to it. sensual pleasures, clinging to views, clinging to rules and vows, and clinging to a doctrine of self. Ah. So that clinging to se- uh, sensual pleasures I allude to is only one of these four. That's right. Mm. And so um, now we really, really get into the mechanism that he's talking about. Um, and... Um, so, so that's really fantastic, I yeah. think. Um, yeah, the, uh, of, of these four, only one of them is about physical things. The rest are all mental. That's right. Mm-hmm. And not only that, we get, so we get this thing from this kind of, um, you know, immediate vedana, right? This just immediate hedonic tone. And now we're kind of going up levels of mentality. We're building structures around that, which is exactly what you were talking about. But it's coached in absolutely very extremely clear language, right? Yeah. And yeah. then from uh, clinging, well, what do we get? We get bhava. What, what does it say about bhava? And what bhikkhus is existence? There are these three kinds of existence, sense-sphere existence, form-sphere existence, formless-sphere existence. This is called existence, which is what I guess is being translated here as uh, bhava. Bhava. Yeah, I know. I've never heard that, that interesting, that word fear. I've never heard that one in there. I've never read that translation. Did I say fear? Yeah, you said sense-sphere existence. Oh, sense-sphere. Sphere, sphere. sphere sorry. Sphere. Yep. Okay, yes, yes, yes. Sense-sphere. That's yes. not so easy that to one say. I've heard. <laughs> yep. So, okay, yeah. Sense-sphere. Uh, um, formless and uh, sorry, what was the other one? So, oh yeah, sense sense sphere, uh, form sphere, form sphere, and formless, and formless sphere. I can see sphere. why that translation didn't catch on. That's, yeah. that's not going to work out loud. Um, <laughs> it only works on paper. But once again, so now we have something that's so so clear, right? Because now we're talking about once again a transition from one type of thing to another, right? So if somebody engages in sensual clinging and that's all they really know. Um, then they're going to have a sensual rebirth of a type, mm. right? And um, I think in this, the form sphere, uh, the form sphere clinging is going to be clinging to uh, the meditative, the first four meditative attainments is generally the way that I've seen this. Now, it might not, the, I could be reaching too far there. Um, and so then the form sphere is going to include uh, the Brahma realms, the Deva realms, that kind of stuff. The formless sphere is going to be for those people like uh, Alara Kalama, who have attained uh, some of the the highest, you know, the um, base of infinite space, the base of infinite uh, consciousness, the base of neither perception nor non-perception, right? Things yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, and so then they're going to go on. Yeah, the Arupajanas. <laughs> they're going to go on to some sort of formless existence um, that's going to last a very, very, very long time. Um, he talks about the more refined sphere that you get into, the longer you're going to last there. Um, also in DN1, he talks about non-percipient gods, that there are such things as gods that exist that have no form, no feeling, <laughs> no nothing, not even perception, but they still exist up there in this kind of, like, I guess, restful place that's really wonderful. But then once they develop perception, then they uh, reappear in the perceiving realm. Yeah, that, that one's got to be one of the, I don't know, most hilarious uh, deities that could possibly exist. Right, it's, exactly. Uh, Just incredibly powerful, but you experience none of it for yeah. a really, really long time. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so, so once again, I think with bhava here, we get a real strong, right? So then with bhava, uh, their intention towards a, a particular sphere, 
then we get birth in that sphere, right? And uh, what's birth? What does he got for birth there? The birth of the various beings into the various orders of beings. They're being born, descent into the womb, production, the manifestation of the aggregates, the obtaining of the sense base. This is called birth. And this is the one that puts the lie to the idea that no rebirth is just moment to moment in this yeah. life. This is descending into the womb. That's, yeah. that's pretty clear. It's, you can't be any clearer <laughs> about that, right? No, it's not to say that, the, that the, um, the analogy of being reborn every moment isn't useful and interesting. Right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I would say that it's not this teaching. It's just not this teaching. It's not this teaching. Yeah. But I think that absolutely it's a useful idea. It's something that we can see. I mean, and I guess if you really wanted to twist, and that's what I don't like, is that you can kind of twist it into this. You can say that um, by taking up an idea, like I gave the example of a baseball player wanting to be a baseball player, that you're going to, that that's a type of like sense rebirth, right? That that's an yeah. idea rebirth. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you can kind of do that. But you really got to twist stuff in order to do that, right? Okay, let me, let me give you a, a, a hot take on dependent origination here and sure. see, see if, you, if you agree with me at all or if I'm going too far with this. Um, one thing about those Nibbana sermons that, mm-hmm. uh, is he takes, I, I think, dependent origination to be obviously a key teaching, no mm-hmm. doubt about it. Yeah, no doubt about that. But also the entree into practice. Mm-hmm. We are to practice in order to break these, uh, the, these links of the chain. Mm-hmm. I don't really agree with that. Uh, Here's what I think. I I think that this is a really good, careful explanation of parts of the path. And I think everything has to relate to the Four Noble Truths. This relates Mm -hmm. to the Four Noble Truths. It's a careful breaking down of it and a way to understand it and a way to uh, kind of look to the goal and a way to understand what we're doing here. Absolutely. But I actually think it's a little bit dangerous to say, okay, then we should practice this and we should be thinking about how am I going to break that link with comma and consciousness or how am I going to break that link with this or that? Because I don't really find any place where the Buddha taught that as a primary path. If you look at the path, it's the eightfold path. It's the uh, uh, the gradual training. Those are what you actually practice in order to achieve the breaking of these path factors or in order to mm-hmm. kind of realize the, uh, the, the, the promise of the, the teaching of dependent origination. But not that dependent origi- origination should be a practice in itself. For one thing, in all of this that we've read, there's never anything that points to practice. Mm-hmm. I uh, basically agree with you 100%, except for I can only say that I've only read the first uh, third of those sermons. But I haven't <laughs> read all of them. It's so, been years for me. Yeah, yeah. I, don't know, I, I don't know exactly how much he gets into that. Um, I guess what I think mm. is the practice aspect of this that we should see in our lives is not these 12 nidanas, but the teaching, the first teaching that we were talking about, right? Um, the, the absolute thing that because, because of this, there is that, yeah. right? And the idea that we can actually get, uh, if we have something, an undesirable that, right, that we can get it to cease, by getting rid of the underlying thing that's there. Maybe I, I could say it like this, that if we find ourselves relying on any of these 12 steps, we find ourselves resting on consciousness or resting on Nama Rupa or nest, resting on Kama, um, then we're automatically wrong, right? Well, None uh, of those places are... Yes, are, uh, oh, oh, sure. I think that, I mean, I'm not even, once again, I'm not even talking about the 12, the 12 links at all. I'm literally just talking about looking at that, that teaching of when there is this, there is that, and applying that to every single moment of your life. Mm. And for me, um, this, you know, obviously I can't say, oh, this is entirely clear to me because I'm not an arhat. I know that for a fact. <laughs> but I can say that I gained some insight into this teaching um, both as a violinist and as a violin teacher. Oh, yeah. I, for years, I had so many problems. I mean, I can't even tell you how many problems I had with the violin. Um, uh, problems with memorization. 
uh, problems with playing in tune, problems with nerves, all these kind of things. And I was always and inevitably trying to solve those problems by looking directly at the problem instead of what precedes the problem. Oh, yes, yes. And so then it was like a huge breakthrough for me when I realized that one of the reasons that I never that I always played out of tune is because I couldn't adjust fast enough. The reason that I couldn't adjust fast enough, right, because I thought that playing in tune meant that you had to nail every single note, mm. right? No, for violin, it's about adjusting. It's about getting very close and then adjusting that tiny little bit left, right? Well, in order to do that, you have to both have a very relaxed mind and a very relaxed body. So when I worked on relaxing my mind and relaxing my body, then my intonation came in real quick. That, that, that is so good. I, I've often thought how uh, uh, parallel the practice of music is with the practice of, uh, of Dhamma and especially meditation. Uh, and they bo- both use the same word, is that, that, that idea of practice. You know, just so many parallels, you know, uh, that on the one hand, it's not about just practicing really hard. Yes, on which is what hand, I was trying to do. for. But on the other hand, it requires practicing for right. a, a, lot, a lot of time and a lot yes, of effort, you know. Absolutely. There's just so many wonderful parallels. And that's a, that's a really good one, is looking for the, um, the, the source of the problem. This is, this is one of the my you know one of the things that most uh, inspired me when I finally realized it on the, uh, the the eightfold path was that every step comes in order because uh, because in order to solve any problem you've got yes. to look to the previous step rather than that the, is correct well and maybe that leads us to the next soto we're, we're um, going to talk about yeah yeah uh, well, let's finish up with this sure. real quick what's, 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 what's uh, so uh, Bhava and then Jati Jaramarna oh, okay so the other thing is I guess with this last thing is that um, the reason and this is why I'm so so dead set on these things being individual links and they're all linked together one mm-hmm, after the other mm-hmm. is because of this teaching, right? If we had, like you said, is, is if we had a weed that spread out at some point, right, and we've got leaves, well, then um, when those cease, then the things after them wouldn't cease, right? The, the things after them would cease? No, they wouldn't, right? So if you've got, uh, like you talked about a weed spreading out, right, and it's got the big blossom at the top and it's got the root in the bottom, right. and then it's got all these kind of offshoots of it, right? Right, right. But if we get one of those offshoots, then it's not connected to anything, right? Mm. It's nothing after that step in the chain is going to cease. And what I really, really believe is that if you uh, if you stop one of the links in the chain, that all of the ones that come after them are going to cease. And that ignorance is tied in with that, I think, also, um, it, although this isn't explicitly stated, it's oftentimes shown as a, as a rotating chain, right? Um, that, uh, that this everything links back to ignorance eventually, right? And so if you can get it to cease out anywhere, that you're going to actually destroy the whole thing. And one of the other things that I'd add, uh, add um, I agree with you 100% that this is not really a meditation object. This is not really something that we do. Um, it is, however, though, um, he uses this. Um, in so many different ways. And one of the things, if you bring up uh, DN15, I believe, which we will find is we will find um, a beautiful teaching of this which goes in a completely different direction. There's like 17 different links that are never mentioned and they all involve how uh, like war breaks out, essentially. Oh God, this is a long sutta. I don't think I'm going to read all this. Yeah, all right. <laughs> well, so in there though, in, in DN15, it's really fantastic. He uses the this-that conditionality um, starting with feeling, uh, moving through all these different links, which I don't have memorized, I can't really remember them, leading eventually to safeguarding, and then from safeguarding, then, you know, uh, kind of taking up arms and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so he uses that idea of the this-that conditionality. Um, I think that um, the other thing is that when we look at the context of this teaching, so often people are wanting to know about rebirth. They want to know, okay, if there's no substantial self, how does this work? Is there no self? Is there a self? And every single time he gives them this teaching. 
And so, um, yeah, I don't think it's a meditation object. But when we start asking ourselves and getting into these extremes of, uh, you know, uh, the, the two ones, the annihilationism and uh, the, what's, what's the other one I'm looking for? Uh, eternalism. Eternalism, yep. When we start looking into that, we look at, oh, okay, this, this is the middle way. This is how we yeah, can have yeah. some of those features of eternalism, some of the features of annihilationism, but really this beautiful, amazing teaching which just spells things right out for us. Well, and clearly it's an aspect of right view. I mm-hmm. mean, this is this is the way to understand a really important yeah. teaching. Hey, j- just to go back a second yeah, yeah. To, to defend my, uh, my, my, uh, my weed analogy. Sure, sure, no, no. Of course, no it's just an analogy, so it's not yeah. going to be uh, quite perfect. You know, I'm not sure what, uh, what the uh, uh, the weed killer in, in, <laughs> in, in this analogy, but yeah. So uh, you, you said, for example, if you destroy one of the uh, the, the middle um, parts of the path, and everything after it is is um, is gone, right? Yeah. First of all, I don't really think that's true. So, for okay. example, if you took the sense uh, exter- uh, six external sense bases, right? Mm-hmm. You could blind someone, deafen someone, yeah. cut out their tongue, okay, all that, yep. right? No, and, you're and absolutely They're still going right, to die. Yeah. They're still, it, sure. Yeah. You know, in, in fact, I think that with one possible exception, all of them, if you somehow manage to uproot it, but don't uproot ignorance, then they'll all return in a, in a flash. Yeah. And okay, yes, no. And, and here I absolutely agree with you. You're absolutely right. Um, the, I guess the way, though, that the, and this is tricky because I think that there is ignorance present in each link, mm. right? And so, yes, you're right. You absolutely have to uproot the ignorance. Um, but the ignorance, like the ignorance could exist at one link as opposed to, like it exists throughout all the links, right? You could be ignorant about one step of the chain. Is that the one exception? The one exception I mentioned was mm-hmm. uh, craving. So craving. what if you did? What if you did uproot craving? Would it be possible to uproot craving without uproot uprooting ignorance? Or <laughs> sure. No, <laughs> you're right. Absolutely. I'm not sure. And 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 once again, that's I think that uh, you're talking about. Yeah, feeling with feeling comes craving, and that there's there's ignorance involved in that process right there. Yeah. What I think we we might be hitting up against. It's mm-hmm. it's possible that we're just uh, we just don't know enough, and we're going to learn more sure, about this, and absolutely. all all of this is is great. But it's also possible that really. Dependent origination also is an analogy. In the same way that the weed is an analogy about an analogy, dependent origination isn't reality itself. It's just one particular way of talking Absolutely. about this, yeah, this no, thing I that's going that, on. I agree so if we, if we push yeah. it too hard and, and if we push every word of every uh, every part of the description too hard, then sometimes we can uh, – you know, uh, go beyond what's helpful. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, one other thing, and I, I know we're, we're wrapping this up. We're going to get to that next teaching, I know. Uh, but uh, one other thing that I would add, too, is uh, in Samadhiti Sutta, um, do you know what precedes ignorance? What precedes? No. This, this? Is fan- this is absolutely fascinating, and uh, these Nibbana sermons just, oh, made things so clear for me. Um, uh, the Asavas. The Asavas precede ignorance. Now, of course, one of the goofy things is there's the asava of uh, sensuality, there's the asava of ignorance, and there's one more asava. I can't remember what it is. Asava? Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, yeah, asava, mm-hmm. asava. Uh, once again, my poly is mm, terrible. <laughs> like literally I just read these terms and then I'm like, okay, that's how I'm pronouncing it in my mind. Moving on. So someone someday should have uh, just like the, the audio uh, version that goes along with the poly dictionary. Absolutely. So you can just click on the word, hear what it sounds Fantastic. like. Fantastic. Yeah, that oh would be really gosh. useful. Um, Call out there to the world of the internet to, to yeah. give us that. So and then this is too, this is another one. And, and then we can leap into DN21 because it, it also describes the asavas. Um, but this, uh, this idea, the asava is oftentimes translated as a fermentation. <laughs> and I just thought, what in the heck is a fermentation? I don't Sounds delicious. Right. I, <laughs> what is this? Right. So, um, now though, this can link back to our discussion about comma and about neutral comma, 
Okay, so in the Nibbana sermons, and this is what made so clear, not, not necessarily everything that he was explaining, but this specific thing that he explained, I went, oh my gosh, wow, just boom, brain explosion. He was like, the way that this term was used was in distilling and fermenting beverages, mm. right? So that you could have, like if you were making beer, the, uh, the as- asavas uh, left over from the beer, you could just take that out, you could stick that in a new batch of stuff that you need, and then that would create beer out of that. Oh, that's good. Oh, my gosh, right? Like the mother for a sourdough bread. Ex- or, yes, yeah. exactly. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this makes so much sense. The other thing that I think about this teaching, why this teaching is oftentimes not defined. We only find one or two definitions or maybe three, and then there's just thousands of times where it's just like, oh, just this is the teaching, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> I really believe that one of the reasons it's so difficult for us to connect with this is this is um, something where he was functioning within a culture where almost all of those terms were already defined. Oh, absolutely. And he might have, you know, and so he was connecting them in new and unique ways and talking about them in different ways, but they were all terms that people were probably very well familiar with, right? And so when we try and make an entrance into this, it's as if, you know, I, I was telling somebody, I said, you know, okay, if I was at a baseball game and I was around all baseball fans, I could sit there and I could talk about any element of baseball and I'm not going to have to define my terms at all. I don't have to right. define RBI. I don't have to define home run. I don't have to define double. I don't even have to, um, you know, uh, I don't even have to define infield fly rule if I'm with people that are that are pretty big into baseball, right? And so all these people that are coming to him, these are not people that are totally uninstructed. These are people that have practiced many years, oftentimes in other very similar systems, Right, and now they're coming to him and asking them questions because they're asking about comma. They're not asking like, "Is comma a thing? What is? <laughs> what are you talking about? I have no idea. What does that term even mean? It means action. What? What are you talking about? No, they already have a very good idea of what they mean when they say comma, and they want to come ask him questions about it. And so then he defines it in this completely new way, which is so clear to them that they end up becoming his students. I, I'll, I'll give you another uh, uh, wrinkle on that. Mm-hmm. Is uh, I, I was just reading this last night. Apparently, there's this whole field of study called I want to say glotto philology or something like that. But the, the, the idea is that languages change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And interestingly, according to this, that they change at a fairly steady rate no matter what. Sure. That language was changing just as fast in the 16th century as it is now, despite okay. Facebook or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But also, even in, say, like hunter-gatherer societies, language mm-hmm. changes. And, and in fact, uh, supposedly, one of the places where it changes the fastest, even though it's relatively stable, was in aboriginal Australia. Really? The, 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 to the point where, like, you could almost literally not understand what your grandparents were saying and vice versa. Wow. Yeah. So, Fascinating. Uh, so if you think about something like that going on yeah. in, in India at that time, on top of it, you know, being at this clash of cultures, the, you know, the, the, the Brahma culture and the, and, the, and the indigenous culture coming together, uh, you, you think of the Buddha living at a literal crossroads of, uh, you know, yeah. that it would, it would not be um, strange at all for these words to have been changing meaning in his lifetime and with him pushing that change of meaning forward. And also changing a lot in the 200 years between his death and when these things were really firmly cemented as yeah. being canonical. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. So we're we're wrestling with uh, with vocabulary here in, mm-hmm. in a strong way. One of the one of the biggest ways that I noticed this was in uh, Jhana, which I hope we get to talk mm-hmm. about at yeah, some yeah. point. That it really so much of what you think about Jhana, at least according to the suttas, comes down to how you define. You know, five or six words. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and it can make such a difference on how you think about a really key practice. Yeah. And what do you take to be the final definitive authority on it? Right. No, it's, I mean, and that's that's what you have to practice. Yeah, I think the five words you're talking about are uh, Vitaka Vakara, Kagata, 
uh, Pitisuka, probably. The, 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 yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, the, the, and that's, yeah, you're right. Man, does that get tricky. <laughs> well, I hope we do get to talk about that. Absolutely, I, I, I'd love I, to. Of all the things on this blog, those are the posts that are always the, uh, the most... Um, uh, most read, yeah. and it's because people are really interested because it's a difficult topic. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so All much right. for dependent origination, yeah. at least for the moment. 